Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Security Podcast in Silicon Valley. I am here today with a very special guest, Kevin King, the co-founder and CEO of American Binary. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you and nice to meet everyone in your audience. You know, it's great to have you on. I was just looking over your experience. You go all the way back to being in the U.S. Army. I have to say thank you for your service. After the Army, you ran for, you're a candidate for the House of Representatives in Georgia. Yes. What was that like? It was, it was quite the experience. I lived in Georgia and at that time I was much younger and I had just gotten out of the army. It was during the Iraq war. I was the head of claims. I worked for JAG and I was assigned for six of my seven years to mostly infantry or line units. And so I, I loved it, my experience. And when I got out, I, I had a number of things to say, especially having lived overseas. And while I was, when I got out, it was a sort of, I'm going to live the rest of my life kind of mentality. I can be anything. I can do anything. Nobody can stop me. Absolutely. And it's like, I'm no longer in a place where I have to watch everything I say. And I have to be mindful of whether or not people like me to get the assignments I want. And I no longer had to care. At least so I thought. <laughs> so I said anything I wanted. I did, ran for everything at once. Yep. I got an internship at the Carter Center. I met President Carter. I worked with the former Zimbabwe colonel who was in the uprising over Rhodesia. We hit it off. Wow. I, I was also in, the, I transferred from University of Maryland, which is the primary choice for people while they're in military to go to school. I had a free tuition at Georgia State University plus the GI Bill. So I had money for a house and rent and for my tuition paid for. So it was easy for me financially as a person who didn't have any financial resources or assistance. I did everything by myself. Mm -hmm on couches at 18 because with nowhere to stay on my own. So I made my way in life and I got out of the army. And when I got out, I was like, I'm going to be president of the U.S. I'm going to do everything I want. No one can stop me. And I ran for state house while an intern at the Carter Center, while catching people stealing at Banana Republic, and while also giving speeches, traveling. And what else am I missing that I was also doing at the same time? Oh, and I was a, 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 an honor student at Georgia State University. I, in an honors program, writing a thesis as an undergraduate student on democratization processes in Northeast Asia and South Korea. And so while doing all those things and learning a lot of lessons, I learned that running for office is not one of my strong suits. I think that if you're a person of nuance and you're a person of thoughtfulness, don't run for office because mm. the people who knock on doors are not going to be too excited about that. You were very busy. Uh, you looks like you've stayed very busy too. And you mentioned that your connection to Korea and you actually ended up as a, an oil market analyst yes. in Seoul there uh, shortly after your. That's a strange series of events. So when I, I realized I wasn't going to be a politician in today's very extreme politics, I was like, I don't want to participate in just lying to myself and people all the time to get elected. And so you put your push to do that in a way you can't have a conversation. You can't say this is complicated. And so when I, I was disheartened and I wanted to know what I'm going to do with my life. And we, I decided to go to South Korea. I'd first lived there the first time when I was in the army. And I could tell you all kinds of stories about this. I used to spin records and vinyl records. I played house and progressive house and trance in 2009 from 1998 to 2005. Awesome. And 
I used to play in my barracks spinning on two MK2s and a DGM 300. And I had a huge collection of vinyl. I was really serious into it Mm -hmm. and being mathematical about my mixes and stuff like that and a proper progression, setting the mood. And Mm -hmm. I got a gig as the first Caucasian or white guy in South Korea at one of the biggest clubs in the country. And there was a DJ. That was a DJ. I spun records with a DJ and I played in big rooms in, in Korea. And also I did in the U.S. and Nashville and other places in Atlanta. Usually when people have a side hustle or a night gig, like it's not quite like that, but that's spectacular. Yeah, I I didn't do it for the money. I did it for the friendship and the people I meet. And I I remember like meeting people from Hong Kong and Singapore and Dubai who would come up to me. And I did it for the experience. Mm -hmm. And what I was, I really loved it. And I loved meeting that side of Korea outside of the military. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I want to go back. And it's a sprawling metropolis, almost no crime. Culture is totally different. Everything is a challenge. And I like that. I like the fact that there's so much uncertainty. To me, that was the most attractive thing. So you like to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Yes. It's got to be stim- a stimulating. It's a perpetual dopamine burst. It definitely can be. It definitely can be, as long as it's not too much. And sometimes folks like, well, will buckle and crumble underneath the weight of all of the change and there's okay. a Goldilocks zone in there. Like, There's, there are definitely right. to each and their own people should do what they're comfortable that's, with. That's true. That's true. And for me, it was like, I like that. I like the, I like being in that hot seat. So I went back and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I decided to go for a graduate degree at their top school. So it's almost all Korean national school where their ambassadors and diplomats go and my economics professor in graduate school was the future economic minister of South Korea. And those kind of category people, it's going to Peking University in China or uh, Tokyo in Tokyo. So these Asian countries, the national school is the best school, not the privately owned ones. So mm-hmm. that school I went to, I was almost the white kid in all my classes. It was a lot of fun. I had arguments with the ambassador's daughters and we had heated. It was, it wasn't no, my graduate school, it was really strange being in Korea. There were no people who, there was no conversation even, not one time about like being thoughtful. It was more like just a punching match every day and ah. people raising their voices in my experience in class. And I, I remember people from Chile and we would talk about America and Latin America. And we had a lot of love for each other because we didn't pull punches. We respected each other as people and trusted that, but we came in swinging. And I loved my graduate school experience for that. And, and Koreans, in my experience in graduate school, I lived there 10 years and plucked more cumulative. And I speak Korean. Yeah. And my Korean friends sometimes consider me like Korean because I can speak like it's pronouncing like Korean. If you call me on the phone, I will sometimes they don't know that I'm not Korean. Wow. And in that experience, like in graduate school, Koreans are very direct. I'm going to generalize. I remember I was taking an elective in petroleum engineering and in front of one student, this other guy said, don't study with him. He is not smart in front of his face. Ah, I see. <laughs> well, it doesn't get more direct than that, does it? Yes. And did you, did you study with the guy or no? Yeah, I did. We were friends. Oh, you did? Okay. All right, but but I did take the advice a little bit and I like double checked what he said to me with the other guy. But those were those when the people plant those seeds, they're dangerous. But uh, yeah, that, that was the experience for me. And especially when they speak English, you don't have such a f- emotional assignment to the words. Mm-hmm. So throwing barbs in a second language is much easier. And so I used yep. to get them in English nonstop. 
<laughs> yeah. But you start developing like a tone deafness to the volatility that comes from hearing constantly offensive things. One time I had a job that was this PhD guy had a PhD from at the Energy Economic Institute from mm -hmm. Ohio. Mm -hmm. And he said, you only got this job because of your skin color. I was like, wow. Oh, oh. I was like worked up for two hours. So. And, and for all of our listeners, what do you identify your skin color as? I'm white. <laughs> Northeast Asia. So it's Northeast a different world. Okay. Yes. It's, not a, it's not a part of the globalized social world. It's still isolated. And they have foreign products, but it's a very isolated world. I, one time I was at a, with a rock singer I met when I used to be a DJ, and there was a woman standing behind a guy. And I said, why, why is she afraid? Do I look like somebody on TV she doesn't like? She said, no, she never saw a white person before. Oh, oh okay. In person. In person. Yeah, of course. It's, yeah, uh... They were nervous. This was in 2001. So the delta between like where our idea of globalization and then that world is like 25. Where, where was that? South Korea in Seoul. In South Korea. In Seoul. Yeah. In Seoul. Really? Yeah. So people coming as tourists to Korea and in mass to teach English is a new thing. And it didn't really start then. So there were like four Starbucks for a reference here in the whole country at that time. And so you could literally go to a nightclub and not see a person from another country for five hours. And so you're the only one. Mm -hmm. And if you get in trouble, you're always on the losing side with the police too. So it's a very like the law applies to local people. If you're foreign, the law is a little different now. So you're mm -hmm. not supposed to be here anyway in the country. So it's like that. I see. You gotta just be careful. Be aware of your surroundings always, but especially in a situation like that. Huh? It's changed a lot. So the world has also changed a lot in, in, in now 23 years. At that time, there were often frequently signs that say no foreigners allowed in the nightclub or the restaurant. And so there would be- Did you go in anyway? No. No. If you speak okay. Korean, you could maybe get away with it. And oh. then if you, so I used to. So if you want a story like that, I'll give you one. And then we could talk I'm, about some other I'm stuff. curious. Yeah, we could talk about security here in a second, but yeah. so, uh, let's hear the story. Okay, I'll tell one of my friends wants to ask me to, if he wanted to meet Ryan to be to write a book because he said it should be like the HBO Max, Tokyo Vice. I don't know if you've seen that. It's about a guy who lived in Japan that got the first American to work at a Japanese news organization. He reported on Yakuza. Mm -hmm. True story. And so they made a TV series, HBO Max series about it. I recommend it. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, you should do something like that. And I was like, because I have a lot of stories. And when I was in the 2nd Infantry Division, just be, I was there during 9-11. So that's like about oh. 20, 40 miles from North Korea. And so when 9-11 happened, we were on lockdown because nobody knew who was to blame for a 9-11 at that moment. We had no intel. So everything was on the table and including the North Korean forces realizing this is their once in a 100 year chance to get the United States while it's distracted. And when they always, they, a lot of people in the world don't know, North Koreans still shoot South Korean soldiers. There are frequently firefights across the border still today. Mm -hmm. In fact, I worked that. in the office with a guy who was shot by a North Korean right through the calf. And I asked him, like, what is that hole on your, like, it looks like a cigar, Nate Byrne. Right. And he's, oh, that was from a North Korean. A Korean bullet, like, that went yeah. through me. Yeah, it was an American okay. guy, and he was in my office, and he was relocated to work for JAG instead of being, like, infantry after he was shot by a North Korean. And so they shoot Americans. <laughs> Mm. And it's, it was me experience and overseas realized what American media cover 
And what happens is like a huge gap. Americans get a very curated view of the world. Oh, extremely. It is universal to blame no matter whether it is left or right. They just don't genuinely cover everything. No, it's so true. It's so true. My morning routine is I grab my phone and there's a, there's an app called Hourly News and it is a app that downloads like the news clippings from all like major news outlets and just the clippings, just like headlines and like 20 seconds on what happened. And you can hear from NPR, from Fox News, from the CBC, which is Canadian, from Deutsche Welle, which is German, from, there's a, which one is it? The Hong Kong News. Hong Kong News has the Chinese Hong Kong. I like Bloomberg Asia. They cover very different things from the United States. I used to, I don't know now that China has taken over Hong Kong. I would imagine it's a little more uncomfortable for them. Unless they're moving to somewhere that allows them to have a little bit more freedom of press like Singapore. Although that's relative, right? In Asia. <laughs> but I think Hong Kong is probably at the least comfortable place to work for the press and occupy and live right now. But yeah. it was really great. And you would learn all kinds of things about issues in smaller cities in India. And it's fascinating. You know, what's incredible is like when you compare and contrast different news sources, you hear, no one lies, but when something big happens, there's things that don't get reported or reported like slightly differently with a different tone. You notice the gaps and you notice, hey, yeah, like, it's not exactly as straightforward as someone sells it on one. That, that is the manipulation. So I always say there's a hundred truths you can talk about on a topic. And maybe the human brain can only handle four or five out of that hundred that you select. And the one you select is either the conscious or the subconscious manipulation. We all do it. We want to persuade someone and it's a human thing. I think it's superhuman. I call it drinking the Kool-Aid. And we all got like our own version, our own flavor of Kool-Aid that tastes good for us. I can give an example. When I lived in South Korea in 2003, at the just before I, I was transitioning from South Korea to the U.S. to 3rd Infantry Division. 3rd mm-hmm. Infantry Division was the first over the Burman to Iraq. So I was in the rear with the, because I wasn't in the war, I was in the rear and was head of claims. Before transitioning, South Koreans was super anti-United States at that time. It was very strange. It was like a U- Europe just going a different t- track than the U.S. and saying, we don't agree. And the being a smaller country in South Korea, they felt like identify with a larger country invading the smaller one. So they shot red paintball guns at American Hummers and it got a little ugly. They kidnapped an American soldier at Huegi University, Kamide, and it was a big issue. So my office handled, I worked in National Affairs Office for 8th United States Army in Seoul. And we had to deal with a, like a lot of bad issues in South Korea mm-hmm. at that time. Big change now. It's like the South Korean presidents visiting the U.S. and singing karaoke with President Biden. And it's so different. Twenty yeah. years. It's a completely different world. But at that time, that was the South Korea I was in. And I remember one time when I was getting a flower for a girl. This gentleman came up to me, and he just started putting his finger in my place, yelling "You Bush" and "President Bush," and he was like jockeying for a fist fight. And it was in a crowded street in the middle mm. of Seoul. And I got, was a, I usually dealt with that kind of stuff with wit. And so I pulled my mobile phone out. We had flip phones, we didn't have smartphones. And I started pretending to dial something. All these Koreans are watching me. Who are you dialing? And I said, it's Bush. You can talk to him. He's right here for you. You tell him, get the fuck out of my face. And like, he, every, all these Koreans started laughing at this guy, right? The whole crowd, it was a crowded street, and they're all laughing at him and my wit. And he just felt bullied by the crowd. 
which is what you want to do in that you sort of situation, right? Flipped the crown. Yeah. Nice. The, the absurdity of holding a person accountable for the actions of people they have no control over in itself was like ironic. And I wanted to basically use that absurdity to humiliate the person and neuter right. them so that they would discontinue the, and it wasn't like I want, right. I didn't even, I didn't have the patience for a 15 minute conversation with that person. Right. And I don't think they deserved that 15 minutes of my time. Of course not. So that's how I ended it. <laughs> so elegant, super witty. Like, I love it. And it's a good like defense mechanism to just be aware of your surroundings and be aware of like the culture of everyone else. So like in that space and that that was, you knew that was going to flip the crowd of people watching. Yeah, it wasn't the first you. time, but we, I had two more others. This another podcast. <laughs> okay. That's for another podcast. So do share with me, like, how did you get into the security game? Like you're now at American binary. You're, you're working on some really difficult, might I say open problems of post quantum cryptography, which has nothing to do with like good Bitcoins and stuff like that. This is real crypto. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, cryptography is actually protecting your content of data, bit smashing as you. I'll make an, an analogy here. When you're, we're in high school and we're young and we're 15 or 16, everyone's talking about kissing a girl or sex, but no one actually mm -hmm. did it. Right. So. It's like that in cryptography. If a person's talking about it a lot and that they know about it, they probably don't. And cryptography is a lot like handling enriched uranium. It's mm -hmm. not the kind of thing you can be an engineer and in six months just read up on and do. It's either something that is in you and you are you practiced for 10 or 15 years of how to handle it, to be mm -hmm. responsible for it mm -hmm. and all the different implementations and the how you in, introduce it into austere environments and it gets to be, it's very niche. It's like AMG is to Mercedes or Shelby is to Ford. The cryptography companies are the Shelby's and the AMG's, not the large ones. It's not their strong suit. So right. as I preface that, and we talk about this niche area of expertise, right. the consensus among the cryptography community is that we've hit the end of the shelf life of all of the internet's encryption. And now that is important because everything that we use on the public internet that was developed all has to be replaced. And it's the first time in world history that we're really having to do this because the internet, public internet is a relatively new thing in terms right. of the mass adoption and having millions and billions of websites mm -hmm. and WhatsApp and Gmail and all this is new. And what happens in this very mature infrastructure for e-commerce and for communication when we have to stop and redo everything. And a lot of people are not excited about that, understandably. But it, And so you have this camp where they say, oh, quantum computers aren't near us, so I have to worry about it. Two can, something can be wrong and right at the same time. You're right in that large-scale quantum computers are not here, and they may not be here for 20 years. You're wrong in thinking that computing itself is not a risk to all the encryption, with even without quantum computing. Right. And I think that is the more nuanced truth that is coming out and that a lot of quantum computing companies are moving to classical computing research and taking the ability to run quantum algorithms more efficiently on a classical computer than a future quantum computer. And these sort of esoteric areas of research are happening. In fact, a lot of Chinese research coming out lately is about using today's noisy cubic cubic quantum computer with 300 qubits and breaking encryption with it by wow. combining it with some pre-processing on classical computing. 
Wow. So what you come to learn is that the desire to break encryption, the appetite is so large that large governments like China are pounding in billions of dollars just to breaking RSA because there's right. so much financial benefit to them to be able to do that. And of course, when they do it, they're not going to announce it. I certainly would not announce it. The benefit is only going to be there if you keep it a secret. I think what they're going to do is export the capability for financial gain and for geopolitical influence like a Monroe Doctrine. So mm. if you want to sway countries in like a proxy war to side with you, mm. give them unencrypted access to every citizen they have with the tool. And I think that they will kiss your ring if you can do that because you're guaranteeing them to stay in power. Now they can see everything and all the dissidents. If wars are fought with information, this is like the nuclear bomb. And that's what they call it. And uh, they call it Q-Day. The research really? there. Yeah, they call it um, Q-Day. I, I didn't know. And they, it's a, sort of a bigger problem because... Do you think it will be like one day? Like one point in time or it will be like aggression? Here's the worst thing that could happen. The worst you, thing that could happen is for some... Think of K99, the superconductive material that there was a claim around that might not have been a thing, right? We don't know yet. We don't know yet, yeah. So... Out of the time of this recording, anyway. Let's so. say somebody isn't thinking about, outside of their research, the implications of breaking RSA and releasing the code. But mm. Let's say some new approach of running quantum algorithms on a laptop or on a supercomputer, and they released the code. They just ended the internet. Right At there. least as we know it, it's going to yes. turn off for a couple of days because no one is going to trust anything anymore, right? Yes. So that's the worst thing that could happen is that academic researchers don't understand, like in Oppenheimer, the consequence of what they're doing. And this is a real risk. And so we run with this risk. And you know what is different now from 20 years ago is that all of the world's research and by the hour is indexed on the internet. Right. So unlike 20 years ago, now you can pull all of the prior art for anything you want to elaborate on to break encryption. So you can't say 20 years ago, the encryption wasn't broken and it was, hadn't been broken for every year for 20 years. We don't have to worry about it. That's absolutely wrong thinking right. because the keys to breaking encryption is going to be in prior art and making improvements on it in, math, in mathematics and in that algorithm research. And right. so every day we get closer and closer from what is probably not even exponential, but double exponential innovation, not just, it has a drastic, has very dire implications on, it's not like you breach a, a building like Equifax and you spend six and nine months staging the breach and figuring out your way in or the colonial pipeline. If you can just break RSA at will in real time, then you don't have to stage anything. You can literally bring the company to its knees and put it out of business. Well, there because goes you just Bitcoin. breach every day. There goes like every company that ever does anything on the internet. Now that I did the fear, I can talk about the reality. So the White House has signed three memos articulating a roadmap to upgrade the encryption in light of this perceived threat to corporate, private, to the economy and to national security and to your healthcare right. records. Healthcare is a strange one that there are perpetual breaches at hospitals. Absolutely. That's like the most malicious hack imaginable. They are trying to get information on who is ill so that they can basically offer their family members cash in exchange for secrets. Oh, that's really malicious. It's malicious and dark. And also, if you have psychiatric and other records and you have them of S&P 500 executives, it gets even darker. Yep. 
And those are the kind of things our adversaries want. Blackmail material. Yes, blackmail material, manipulation material. Somebody can say, and I love this question, the U.S. does this and that. Well, yes, but you know what? I'm a U.S. citizen and I don't think that, I think that when China does it, it's a little bit different because it adversely affects me. <laughs> so you have to have a little bit of selfishness there <laughs> and, and be prejudiced against things that, that, that target you in particular and you have the right to defend yourself no matter what the U.S. government does. I have the right to survive as do you. So no, I appreciate well, that. Yeah. yeah, I think that I want us to parse that our way of life is under threat and it's completely irrelevant in about U.S. having done that in the past. It's now about in the moment being present. Do you want to survive now? Yes or no? It's a binary question, actually. And if we want to survive now and we want to not be in the abstract, we want to be material in the present here, thinking physically, biological bodies, I want to survive, then we are taking steps to do that. It reminds me of the self-defense mantra. A, it can happen to you. B, it can happen today. C, like you know what to do about it. And D, you've already decided to do that. Like if you accept those, it's very difficult to take advantage of you. It's very difficult to turn you into a victim, right? A absolutely. I won't go into this podcast, but I've had horrible experiences like a lot of people in life. And I understand mm -hmm. what it is like to feel helpless. Mm -hmm. I've averted very likely like knife attacks and this kind of stuff overseas. And I understand mm -hmm. that things happen and our lives can be lost at any minute. Mm -hmm. I think there is value for people who decide. And also changes like in all martial arts or any kind of sense of vigilance over your body and defending it. Mm -hmm. It changes your confidence in psychology. Totally, 100%. But there is, it's not when you're in a restaurant and you have a spider sense and maybe there are three people who join the room and you can tell that these people can handle themselves, mm -hmm. that they're not living their life in one mile for their entire life proximity and not doing anything uninteresting. You know, right? Maybe their hands are a little bit rougher, unusually muscular in their finger sizes. And you, maybe they got even a knife scratch down their cheek, right? Okay, your spider sense is up. This person is potentially a dangerous guy. And if you at least know how to handle yourself enough, you're not, not going to win the fight, but you just can defend yourself and you have a shot, then you're going to go back to eating your lunch and not care that they're sitting next to you. And that who doesn't want that feeling? Yeah, exactly. That's confidence right there. That's peace, right? It is peace and it puts you in control to be calm when you have conflict and to be able to talk out of it because you don't have any of your adrenaline running, you're focused. And you, like mm -hmm. in the experience with the mobile phone and that gentleman, had I been less physically confident, maybe I would have lashed out in a, like an impulse control problem rather right. than being in control of my impulses because I have nothing to worry about. Right. It's mindset. Oh, I'd love for everyone to have that feeling, right? So you have to want it though. It's not something that you can gift to somebody else. It has to come from some sort of internal drive or a decision that one makes or like an experience that you go through that leads you to see like the value in that. So I think it's easier to be calm and patient with people who are unpleasant when you feel like you don't have really have a whole lot of things to worry about. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. for me, it helps me to be a better person. And that's good. And I'm really happy to hear that you use this as a tool to be a better person and lead a better life because that makes the world a better place. And I do want to live in a better world and I'll do my part to make that a better place as well. 
by using the tools that are right for me to help make myself a better person. So we're in the same boat there. <laughs> and I'm not sure that's the right tool for everybody out there because everyone is like in a different place, but whatever tool people use to help make themselves better, I'm happy for them, like regardless of what that tool is, as long as they don't go off the deep end, as long as it actually results in them being a better person. There might be a religious discussion in there somewhere. I'm wondering if this was coming up. My only comment that sort of scoots around the religious discussion is my own personal philosophy is whether or not I am religious. Are you religious? Before I get to that part, I don't want to put my faith in any idea, in any value, in any belief system. I'm not going to put my life, my immediate life in the hands of that. I won't. And good, good for you. Yeah. For you. And that's where the, my philosophy for it, my philosophy on personal physical security comes from is that you yeah. can believe in all those things, but it's unnecessary to put your life in their hands when you can do more yourself. And so I'm a person of believing of doing full throttle, everything all the time. Amazing. Excellent. Okay. I love it. There you that, go. That's very I scooted around it. You dodged that question with such... Always full throttle everything all the time. Yeah. All right. So in that spirit, so what do you do better than everyone else in the world at American Bible? <laughs> okay. I don't full know about better than anyone else all the time. <clears throat> I would say we probably have some of the most experience in austere environment deployment of post-quantum cryptography. That's a mouthful. So austere environment means like IOT edge devices, pucks for hotspots, things that get to be more difficult, raspberry Pis, for example, mm -hmm. edge devices for the military and this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All of these are different hardware, different systems, different network protocols, a, a lot of complicated computer science. So when you're transitioning to new cryptography, you have to learn a lot about a lot of things. Yep. And we have a lot of experience developing this austere environment and deployment. We're easily two years ahead of everyone else who's going to be heading down that space. First, you've got to build a team. Secondly, you've got to learn about the new cryptographic primitives and the construction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've got to, then you got to figure out what you want to be in the network layer. Are you going to be data link layer two? Mm -hmm. Are you doing something in the web browser? And then what, and if you're doing it at like layer three, what are you using for a network protocol? Is it IK mm -hmm. Kev2? If you're doing a VPN like WireGuard, you're going to obviously throw out the stuff in WireGuard because it's not post-quantum and you're going to replace it. I, I want it in all of those layers. Yeah. You, yeah. It was, this was a bad VC pitch for me <laughs> years ago. And the guy asked me like, how are you going to post-quantum the internet? And I was thinking to myself, have you ever invested in a computer security company? Because I'm a little confused by this question. <laughs> this was a potential investor? Yes. And it was, it, I was not equipped how to handle that question. I should have started off with the OSI model mm, in mm -hmm. different layers of the internet and said, this, is, go our, from this is our up. market. And it's like strange. Yeah. Sometimes people, it's hard. This is really niche. And for me, I'm it learning. Is. It is. Someone yeah. compared us to a cloud computing competitor and they are a TLS layer four. And okay. I said to somebody, they're not even in my market. And they're like, what are you talking about? They do post-quantum encryption. Yeah, but their market is layer four TLS. We're at layer three. Right. So we don't compete. Right. And so when you're talking about this stuff. They, they don't understand what that means. Like the no. difference between layer three and layer two and layer four. And I started a crypto company at layer seven. That's Peacemaker. It was application layer yeah. encryption. 
It's a fascinating to learn this. I'm learning too. I learned it all from my co-founder, Andrew McElroy. He was the president of Linux user group in Nashville. He mm -hmm. used to run Freaknik. He was on the board and mm -hmm. the competitor to DEF CON. He or, was a DEF CON or Black Hat. And he really much knows what he's doing. And I, I have the luxury of working with someone who understands how everything works. We were on a call today talking about baseband off the phone. And he was explaining how you would utilize that for certain things. And the other people on the other side had never even heard of some of the stuff he was talking about. So I have this awesome co-founder, Andrew McElroy, that I get to give mention to in your podcast yep. because he's a national treasure. Amazing. It's always like spectacular when we get to work with the best and the brightest. And it's an, really an honor to build things with other people like that. And the person that stops learning and growing, I might as well just be dead. As far as I'm concerned. It is a marathon, right? It's not a, a race. I have something some of your audience will laugh about and some are going to feel uncomfortable, but I'm going to say it. So I get something controversial, right? A place. Yes. Having worked in quantitative finance. And I was oh yeah. You were a high-speed trader or a, an analyst. Or I did both. I did high-frequency trading at a desk in South Korea at an investment firm, mm -hmm. an investment banks. So they don't have the same rules in the United States and their investment banks are allowed to trade for profit on HFT. And so I ran a desk there doing that. And then I started a small emerging offshore manager for like weekly horizon trading using machine learning for decision-making. We did mm -hmm. what they call a mean reversion, long, short U.S. equity. And we did a weekly mean reversion using an online learning algorithm at that time. And my colleague went on to be an executive director at Good AI in Czech Republic. And so I had good people around me at that time. And I had a lot of experience working with the very idolized in popular culture and media PhD. And PhD is a, a really one, I have had masters and if you want to be immersed in a topic, go for a PhD. Right. If you want to get a PhD to get a job, you're going to be a lousy employee. <laughs> I, it's my experience. <laughs> it just, it's not going to work out because being the marathon and the race, for some people, it's a race to finish the PhD and then they're done. And that's just the, that, that, that's just the beginning. You just got past the first corner of the race, you just started. Right. And that's my thing. If the most biggest thing you've ever accomplished in your life is a PhD, then that's all you ever are going to accomplish, no matter where you go in the private sector. And I've worked with a lot of people with advanced degrees and PhDs from places like MIT and University of Nottingham in the UK, astrophysicists, Cambridge, and some of them are wonderful and some of them are totally useless. And by useless, like in a whole year of work, nothing is accomplished. And that is because for some people, if your goal is to get a degree to then say you had a degree, when you hit the workforce, you're not going to be very useful. If you got a degree because you're passionate about that topic and you bring that passion topic to the workplace, you're going to go to the top. Yes, this is the drive. If you don't like, have passion about your topic such that there is nobody left in the competition, it's an empty wrestling match, just you left, then you will right. get everything you want in life. But if you did it for the status and to be able to tell mom and dad that you got a PhD and to show off when you go back to school, you're going to be useless in the workplace. This is the difference between an internal motivator and an external motivator. If you're driven yes. for those external motivators, you're going to get there. It just, it, they have a tendency to kill creativity. If you have an internal drive, and yes. this is how I describe my interest in security, I can't articulate it. And so I just tell people it's an irrational passion. And it's the best way for me to describe my relationship to this topic of security. I, I just love it. It's, and I can't know, explain it. Like, it's just always been there. 
And I've either volunteered with police in high school to yeah. hit that passion button or in computer science, like focus on security. I'm with you. It is a privilege to be a person who can have passion for things. It's I, I have a lot of very smart or capable or just capable friends and they lack a passion about something. And I'm not sure there's a whole lot that can be done about it. It's a sort of sad to break my heart because you see where it's going to go. Right. And for those people, there, there is a lot to be done in society, but it's certainly not going to be at the front of, of new things, right? That's right. Because when you're in new things, and you're early on, like even in crypto uh, mm -hmm. seven years ago, it's a very lonely place to be when you're new. Yeah. And no one's, everyone's against you. Mm -hmm. And in post-quantum cryptography, we've been down this path for quite a while. And it, we, you know, I saw this email of a competitor and they said, we, we were the first to deploy in Starlink with post-quantum encryption. And I was like, man, we did this in 2021 in a warfighter on a stealth naval ship. And, wow. but the thing about it is we're not doing press releases about our quiet professional work. We're just doing it. Right. And when you're deeply passionate about a topic, you end up being two years ahead of everyone else on it, but it's a lonely place. I showed up, we showed up to warfighters and no one knew what post-quantum encryption was. Mm -hmm. And then in 24 months, it's coming down from the white house, the DHS and OMB and all these offices are looking into it. Wells Fargo hired a team and people call me up and they were like, you were right. And you saw way ahead of the curve. It's not anything about me. It's just passion. Mm -hmm. And I found it was a really cool mix between cryptography and geopolitics in the world. Mm. They go together. Mm -hmm. They do, yes. And not just for surveillance, but let me explain. The world economy is probably going to be a fraction of its size without encryption. Right? Because commerce, transactions, stock exchange markets, PayPal, but we'd be lucky to have any globalization if there was no encryption. No encryption, no globalization. That's right. Right. And, and when you're ending end of the shelf life of encryption for all finance, you run the risk of regressing everything all the way back if we don't get out ahead of it with solutions. Mm -hmm. And that is when I saw that this was the case, I was like, wait a second, I get to be in the hot seat for the end of globalization and trying to prevent that from happening. That's not Hoopers. That's the position of the NSA. Right. That this is an urgent thing. NSA has new guidelines out. Their guidelines for encryption that the NSA put out for private companies that want to sell to the U.S. government is called CNSA 2.0. CNSA. It's like commercial or something algorithm suite. And CNSA 2.0 removed all elliptic curve cryptography. You're not allowed to use it in 16 months. Really? No, not a, you're not supposed to be using it when you sell it to the U.S. government. In other words, it's deemed unsafe. So does that affect like the FedRAMP, like certification protocols? It's all, it's all going to be changing. So FIPS 140-3 is going to be updated too, I believe, to include several post-quantum options. Uh -huh. I think some of the NSA is the most strict. So they've removed RSA as well. At any level, you can't use it. Doesn't matter. And American binary has implementations of the algorithms that are suggested. to Yes. So there, there are three digital signatures and one general purpose post-quantum encryption cipher. Okay. And the general purpose is called Kyber, like in Crystal's Kyber from Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And that, that was developed by cryptographers from the Netherlands, Swiss, Switzerland's office for IBM and mm -hmm. Stanford Research SRI and ARM processor. And wow. a collection of cryptographers had developed it. It went through standardization and review with NIST. It's going to be standardized. People like DJ Bernstein's a popular cryptographer. They all are betting on post-quantum cryptography. 
-hmm. and they recognize the end of the shelf life of encryption. That's why guys like DJ Bernstein participate in the post-quantum challenge as a cryptographer. And I want to go back. The NSA has a new category of device they call cryptographically relevant quantum computer. That is not the quantum computer you hear about on Bloomberg News. It's basically like a special design piece of hardware that will be special designed to leverage like 500 qubits with classical computing and pre-processing and the most advanced math to just break encryption full time. And that's what people are building. And that is a nearer term device than a quantum computer. That's the sense of urgency. And there's another important point. If I could use a little bit harsh language, people who are naive, who take for granted everything they have, who can't think like a bad guy, mm -hmm. they would say, why would anyone use that? I'll put it on my, I'll put it bluntly. Simple for you. Yeah. It's financially really beneficial to do that. Think of all the money they would make. If right. you had the key to the kingdom, what are you talking about? I would say, mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. people will say, people shouldn't be like that. Get in line of the, what should be, it's not going to change the reality. And right. there are people like that. And in right. fact, those are the, those people like that are going to be the first to have it because they have the incentives. This is not about novel science research, for making the world a better place. So, Study encryption is for doing bad things. It and certainly that's, can that's change where the money. Your, yeah. It changes your relationship to power. Right. Yeah. But Boston Consulting Group, I think it was them, they did some research on where the spending within the quantum computing space is going. Mm -hmm. China is not number one for a lot of the spending, the government is. Mm -hmm. And guess what their top area is, meaning they don't spend any more in any other area in quantum computing than factoring large integers. I remember when flash memory was just coming out, like stateful flash memory. Uh, it was before it wasn't reliable. People were like, oh, we won't see that. All the iPods still had like spinning hard drives inside them. And the very first couple of devices that made it onto the market were hybrid devices. Just like this quantum concern that the NSA is pointing out. They, they will be hybrid devices. They will be custom design devices, leveraging quantum mechanics in some non-traditional compute method. Yes. And how do I know this? We worked with other top IP holding quantum computing companies and written papers yep. that have gone to important places in Washington on if we were to design this machine, this is right. what it would look like. Now, that particular compute company we worked with yep. for the purpose of social proof with your audience, yep. Chinese researchers like 20, which means if it's 20 researchers publishing breaking encryption research, they got approval from the Plateau Robo in, in, in Beijing. Otherwise, uh -huh. you're going to end up and shoved in the trunk of a car in China. You don't do that in places like that. Mm -hmm. And so they published a paper talking about our approach to break RSA 2048. Number one, they started off with the goal of breaking a higher level, right out. That's sending warning signals to the world. We want to hurt people. The second thing was they piggybacked on research that came out of the United States about five years ago. I know the specific paper. That paper was called Variational Quantum Factoring, developed by Zabata Computing. And they have the fourth largest IP portfolio in quantum algorithms in the world. They're backed by Honeywell, BASF. The CEO is one of the founders of Siri from Apple. That is Christopher Savoy. These guys are very smart. And the Chinese paper is a derivative of theirs. I'm not going to go into any more detail, but they are years behind the United States. And I will also say... Research and making something better than Shores is much more farther along than not only the public may know, but also many governments. Because if you work at a quantum algorithm company and you do develop something 
better than Shores. And you went to ROTC in high school and you have a little bit of a lean in your perspective of the world. You're going to say, holy shit, I can't tell anyone I did this. And I think that those instances are more than one. Uh -huh. So the things that we all know and the things that actually exist, there may be a bit of a gap. I think this is the, a concern for companies and for the U.S. government and South Korean and other governments around the world is the art of the unknown. And it's if you developed, I was surprised with the superconductor at room temperature release. And I was thinking like, Same. wow, he gave it away. He could have reshaped the entire world in his image. And they right. chose not to do that. But not everyone will be that way. And it's, I think different people optimize for different things. Yeah. So sometimes, sometimes fame and like getting your yes. name out there is more important than the money. And some people want to build black stones and black rocks and Facebooks yes. and Googles. Yes. And so yes. I think this uncertainty of what is the personality types of the people who get it first is like a, a bit of interest, especially out of China, right? Are they going to be publishing it for good faith or are they going to use it for taking the rest of the South China Sea by decrypting everything that comes across South Asia? And it's unclear to people. It's pretty clear that like ever since World War II, probably even before then too, the wars will are won and lost with the control of information. Yeah, the information advantage, right? That, that, is, where, that is how it is done. Do you have a favorite book or a favorite movie that you watched and just really just left a deep impression or a mark okay. or help you change the way that you see the world? Two. A book and a movie, totally orthogonal in why I like okay. it. Okay. I love so, it. All right. I'll start with the beautiful one. So I, my favorite movie, number one all time is Arrival. Yes. That is oh. my favorite movie of all because I have a fascination with the future and I have a fascination. I'm not very good at other languages, but I have a fascination with that. And uh, speaking Korean for at an elementary level for a long time and pr pronouncing it like Korean. But my vocabulary is not so impressive, but it you, I wonder sometimes if you process problems differently in life when you're speaking that other language, like in Korean, for example, I wouldn't say to you, like you and I are going to drive to the ocean where the most important thing is the ocean at the end of the sentence in Korean, you would say the ocean is the place that we are going to drive. So uh -huh. The subject verb agreements are inverted and every aspect of your language is like that. And also Koreans do not use pronouns. So they don't even identify your gender. It's just the language is missing it altogether. And so I love that. Actually, It is very it strange. Changes, it changes the way that you think about things because the tools that we use to form those thoughts, language. Yes. A different structure. And not being political in the United States, when I see all these debates, all I see is people who've never lived overseas. <laughs> oh, that per it's everything is perspective, right? Yes. And one of the beautiful things about traveling and experiencing other cultures or other cuisines or other like value yes. systems is perspective. Korean's a contextual language, meaning that if you're not following the conversation from the beginning to the end, if you jump in the middle, you would be totally lost because they start omitting information. They don't keep repeating it. So, so, so the high context, high context is required, very high context communication style. Yes. And wow. that allows you to delete a lot of things though. And so that's why, for example, they don't have that. So when you first meet someone, coffee or whatever, you may address 
agenda and other things, but never again the rest of the day. And right. so it's just uh, deleted from the language, the, that, that part. And it's really fascinating. That was an interesting one, not to be sensitive, but I want to show the real depth of the difference here. And it's big deal. And then also the subject verb agreements are inverted. So when I watched that movie, I was like, wow, this is so cool because there is the truth to it. Mm -hmm. How you process, how you treat people is also impacted by your language. You use language to dehumanize people, right? So when we want to hurt them, we use labels other than them being a person. Right. And you even see we dehumanize people also when we, when they do things that do not make sense. Like when a person is not being reasonable, we get angry, we yell at them, we call them stupid, and we don't realize that they're operating at the peak efficiency of their biological brain, that the consciousness is not some imaginary cloud with ideas that are more powerful than the biological brain will permit. That's all bullshit. And like when we see it that way, it makes me very patient with people okay, this person's brain is not permitting them to be a reasonable person and I'm just going to sit and be calm till they can get to a level they can understand what is wrong here. And even if it takes me 10 minutes, I, I will wait. Right. And like, you're very patient. You're very that, patient. Well, also, like Korean requires you to be sometimes very patient too in the language because if you come into a conversation mid-context, you're going to wait minutes to catch up. You can't just grab onto the sentence sometimes and see what's happening. And in also when you're learning a second language and you want to communicate in your language to people who don't know your language, patience better be who you are. Absolutely. So it, another way to phrase that is that idea of being patient with people because they're at the peak operating capability of wherever it is that they are. One of the things that I will always remind myself of or afford people. Is that the answer to the question, is that the right thing to do? In their minds, it's always, yes, that's the right thing to do. And yes. now as a listener, it's my job. I put this onus on me as a listener to try to figure out what are those things that are driving you? What are your values? What are your experiences? What have you been through? What are the chemicals in your brain that are setting it up? So that's the right thing to do. And then from that perspective, like you can have a lot of compassion for almost anything that someone might say, no matter how far out there they are. I'm going to guess you and I are in the journey. Phase one in that compassion is to become compassionate. And phase two is to learn to mix that with boundaries. (laughs) Yes, boundaries are good. (laughs) Compassion and no boundaries is how you end up in seeing a psychiatrist in five years for damage. But... It's right. true because you can end up in a codependent relationship, all kind of host of problems. You can let people into your head and abuse you, choose yep. what you don't want to focus on, or let people walk all over you in the name of being nice. And there's a, those boundaries are what allow you to Very a defensible position, then be helped. I might, in this particular spiritual conversation, I think my favorite quote comes from Alfred Hitchcock on his speech about wanting a clear horizon. And in his vision of a clear horizon is going through a day without people seeing hurtful things so that our energy can be put towards more useful things. Yeah. So Arrival is your favorite movie because of the connection to language and you're fascinated by language and it being the connecting glue that we have to each other and how it can shape the way that we think about the world or even ourselves. Well, it's also in physics really deep. 
So like someone asked me, do they not die? Because it's sort of like they're in a phase, right? So like in physics and it's permanent. So it's in the movie, there are some things that are really deep that are assumed that the future is already told and that the future is no different from the past. So you're immortal, but you're not. And that's getting into like heavy in physics, right? That's very heavy. Is that like fate and deterministic universe or is it multiverse or maybe it's both like operating at the same time? Yes, because if you can always, if she's, she lives forever, right? Because she can always be a part of the past and remembering that past and she can always, she can go to the future. And so she's think of it like a moving average for the stock market, right? And you can go back to any time. And when you go back to it, you're present and that present is now. And it's just frozen in time and everything has already happened. And that's what it's like. So it's like replaying, playing a tape and you can replay it as much as you like, but your tape has a dead end and you can't see beyond when your tape ends. And but you can fast forward and rewind and play. Yeah, as I'm much not 100% sure if she could rewind. I guess that's an important part, but I would imagine if she could, if she can go to the future, she can come back to the present, right? Right. And so someone asked me, what does this mean? And I was like, this is too heavy to explain to you in a movie theater. So I'll right. this after. <laughs> like and in I a podcast in where he said, I should yeah. some theoretical physicist to, all right, to talk about this. <laughs> I think our notion of time is all messed up. It is not an arrow as we've evolved to understand it. Like maybe it's the right way to phrase that. And I think oh. that there will be some very interesting things that we discover around time travel. Yeah, one of that my- will have a huge impact actually on how we compute things. Cause I believe that the first thing that will time travel will be information. Yeah, from what I understand in physics and quantum mechanics is that there are certain experiments that are totally legit that give you some advantage of seeing a little bit ahead in certain environments into the future, but they don't call it the future and they say, you're saying it wrong. So that's fine. Okay. Yeah, you can have yeah, some great. like privileged information from a hundred milliseconds into the future. Yes. And so it's so cool. And then we have to ask all kinds of questions about God and religion then, because if yes. you're seeing that there is certainty around the future in some controlled experiments, like not, it's not a regression here. It's not statistics. It's like a fact, a fucking fact, the future. That's mm -hmm. rather than being scared by that, like, I think that's the coolest thing. I we should just march right towards it. that future. Yeah. Like, I want to see if, what that is. Same. And I thought you wanted to avoid the like the religion discussions. Like, this is you uh, that so elegantly earlier. I also, I was born Catholic to Catholic when we're older. We tend not to want to talk about it a lot. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I understand that completely. Religion. I actually grew up in a survivalist call. Wow. My, so, well, I know so I have a friend who grew up in a nudist college. In, in a what? In a nudist colony. In a nudist colony. Oh, that's really different. No, mine was conservative. Okay. So the sex was taboo. As a whole. But like America as a whole, yes. Uh, but to the extreme. And what else? Like we believe like those World War Three was coming. And so there was fallout shelters we had in Montana. Just wow. north of, what was that park? Yellowstone National Park. They had 50,000 acre ranch. And the theology in that cult was like a mixture of all of the world's religions. Wow. Super different. And so growing up, I have a sampling of Christianity and Buddhism and Taoism, Judaism, lots of different stuff like in that mix. But it was also, it also borrowed a lot of things from like metaphysics. So there's like Elohim of the seven rays. So I've gone through a full spectrum of different religious experiences. 
And personally, I see religion. So there's a difference. I make an important distinction between religion and spirituality. Yeah. You know, religion being institutions that are formed by people and we come together and we go to church and there's that physical place we go and there's a set of some doctrines and then spirituality, which is like, what is it that you actually believe? And uh, I have a quantum mechanics view uh, or superposition view of oh, good. institutional yeah, I religion. Do. Oh, of religion. Of religion or karma or, or belief. Spirituality. Religion, like beliefs yeah. and karm there's a catholic version of karma the christian like these consequences of actions and being ordained and fate and all this and i have a simple principle that's guided me really well in life is that if you're going to look for those things they're never going to come just if you look at the schrodinger's cat the states are all collapsed that's right and And you lose your superposition yes right so i always say if there is any of those things there is no benefit to you to look for it you don't. So you if you don't control it and you're going to look for it, the process of looking for it is energy lost on doing something about it. Doing something that making the world a better place, perhaps yes. like working on ourselves. Right? I Change. found a really cool way to spin in quantum mechanics with religion. So I can exist in both, right? It's my politically correct answer. I can recognize it, but my caveat is if you stare at it, then everything runs from you. Nice. <laughs> It's like if you're stuck on a problem, you have to take a break. You have to go do something else. Uh, refresh your context. And well, like then the, when you're not even thinking about it, the answer will come to you. Just like, this is knowledge we all have when people say, when we're young, say, I don't want to jinx myself or I don't want to. We all know this. And whether or not that's true, at least we have peace of mind, right? Sleeping better at night if we don't. And I think like, you, a way to destroy yourself is to wait for karma. A way to destroy your peace is to wait for those things to happen. And you got to just let go and not in a way that your life is much better. And I found that it took me a lot of growth to do that. I used to pray a lot and I used to bet on this stuff and you just you find yourself miserable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wanting something to happen, you have no control over. So what I've learned is just don't look at it and it was Ex- going to happen. It was going to happen. So don't worry about it. Acceptance. Acceptance yeah. for the things that we don't control is things that we don't control. That's such a deep meaning. I don't I think, I wish they wrote a little bit more, like two more chapters on the psychological impact of that in the Bible. <laughs> okay. Okay. So what's your favorite book then? My favorite book is probably, this one's going to come across strange, but it's a tragedy of great power politics by John Mearsheimer. Why is this one your favorite book? Actually. I want to have two. I want to cheat. Oh, you want to have two favorite books. Okay. This is hundred percent allowed. Okay. So I like, because everything I was raised to believe at the tail end of the cold war, he casts water on the coal. And what he suggested was he predicted the invasion of Ukraine and he predicts the looming conflict with China. And for him, it was a very modelable, simple analysis that wasn't hard to see. And when things are very elegant and simple, and then they work out over and over again, I want to look in what is that? And what he simply suggested is that there is no difference between people today and a hundred years ago when it comes to war and there's nothing different. Yeah. And how he lays out, of course, he doesn't say that, but that's the implication from my perspective. And he lays out these very methodical hypothesis and why Russia and what he suggested was, so this, I don't want to get into IR theory too much. We have three levels of analysis. We international state and individual level. And those are universal, no matter what kind of view of theories you have. 
constructivism, international liberalism, or realism. All three classes of study use the same three principles, international, innate state. And what international realism, he's a father of neorealism. He said that international norms becoming closer to other countries and developing laws in the United Nations is not going to stop war. And that this is all fiction in our mind and it has no power and no authority. That's essentially what he says. The average American person will find that sometimes offensive, unsettling, and not something they want to believe true because it casts their dark shadow in the future. But I want to know the future. I don't want to know what makes me feel good. And then Putin invaded Ukraine and walked right over norms and threatening pulling, walking right over norms. China's threatening Taiwan, walking right over norms. And then the U.S. invaded Iraq, violating all the norms. So the statistical reality is to me, he's right. Now, do I like that? Does that make me feel good? No. But is it important to study these things like it is whether you're left or right to study everything and read everything, whether you believe in critical race theory, whatever you want to read everything you want to know, like the general said. And when I want to read these dark things, too, because if they have predictive power, then they're going to inform our national policy. They're going to inform the kind of people we elect. Right. And we want people elected who are sober and not people who are counting on karma and counting on things to happen right. because it's what we believe is right. Our enemies don't care what we believe is right. Right. And John Mearsheimer woke me up to from these dreams and these illusions that when the U.S. won the Cold War, it wasn't just that we had a better system to offer. Clearly, we did. But that's spurious correlation. Also, there is distribution of power, resources, and a whole bunch of other things. I like the mantra of something can be right and wrong at the same time. That's called dualism. Yeah. That's totally true. And demonstrated and, by like Strogan's camp. Yes. And so John Mearsheimer, he ripped the, he ripped the umbilical cord off and had me see the world from a more sobering view. Wow. And I wanted that view so that the world's more understandable to me. And he, he wrote a long time ago, things that suggested that Ukraine was going to, well, I was so surprised. They're like, we're so shocked he invaded. And I was like, yeah, but anyone who studies international realism knows that this was no surprise at all. Right. And I, you were counting on the humanism part stuff to matter. And I think that developed countries in particular, at a certain economic level, at least in the West, right? We think we change with it. We become less attuned towards violence and this kind of stuff. But I'm not sure that this is true. What if we're just on a, on a moving average? We just moved a couple standard deviation from the mean and we're bouncing back now. But, I mean, we have the largest standing military in the world, right? Yes. The U.S. is so, also on its heels and blood is in the water and sharks are circling as a consequence of... Ray Daliano principles of a changing or principles of a new world order, right? But I got news for American people, though. They have to care about our power projection. They have to care about our power as a country, not as one people of the world, because the rest of the world is not down with women's rights. I don't right. know if most of these people know liberalism and democracy as we define it we're a super minority. If, if the whole world had one, we elected one president for the whole world, there would never be another liberal president in the history of the future. Mm-hmm. Again, we don't have the numbers. And when you look at it like that, whether you're left or right in the United States, whatever it is you're fighting for, if the United States doesn't survive, it's all over for all of them. And then some people will say the U.S. will always survive. And that's total nonsense. We, it's fought for every day. And don't know that I won't say just go talk to people in our forces. Go talk to people who do more serious stuff like counterterrorism. Go talk to people who work for special groups out of DHS that do human trafficking. 
And behind human trafficking is a lot of other really dark and dirty stuff. Uh, and so, like, you realize that the average, I'm going to say something a little cold, the average person who's just a good person going in their office every day is not in the fight. And they have no idea that they are not contributing anything to their own security. And well, they pay their taxes, maybe. Okay, you're right about all of that. When we're not in the fight, we... But they're definitely not from lining it. I'm not knocking them. It's a very, I always say those are my favorite people to be around because yeah. you just don't want to hear about the dark stuff. I would say that a lot more is in the balance than people realize. That oh, yeah. yeah. I think this world has come very close to some very dark moments. And like people don't, you generally don't want to hear it. Cuban Missile Crisis incidents. Well, somebody has to hear it because this brings in my other favorite book. This is this, why. Yeah, please. Actually, this is great, man. I'm, you're a great interviewer. So here's the other book that changed my life. I've never worked for the intelligence community in the U.S. I've never done any of that, but I yeah, read Yeah, they it. all say that. They all say that. No, I never did. But okay. I do recommend a book about the birth of the CIA. And it's not what people think. It's a beautiful book. Because at the time, the U.S. didn't have an intelligence community. We didn't collect intelligence. We didn't do it well. And the U.S. wasn't going to win World War II or, the, or survive any of the Cold War if we didn't get good at it. That's right. And they went, and one of the pioneers was a William Colby, and he wrote the book Honorable Men. And the book is amazing because he tells you about his missions. So his first assignment, one of them was in Italy, right after the collapse of Mussolini and the Nazi. And they were going to join the Soviet bloc. It was predetermined. Italy was going to join the Soviet bloc. Think of all of the immigrants to the United States from Italy since then. Think of the mathematicians. Think of their contribution to art, to wine, to food. We'd have never got any of that, right? Think of all the people alive today from Italy who have, they, many of them would never have been born. So the implications are really dark. Mm -hmm. You know, you meet people from Eastern Europe who grew up in that time and they still have wounds from it. So they're still recovering from the trauma. This is generational trauma. So averting that is right. worth all costs. Right. And was a CIA officer in Italy, and he saw an opportunity to interfere in their elections. And it was the right thing to do. So he funneled money to a Catholic church who funneled money to a campaign person who got elected, and Italy did not go to Soviet bloc. One person oh. did that. One person turned mm. the tilt. Of course, there were other people involved. But if he didn't have the passion and the initiative, no one else would have been on the team. Or if he didn't see like what was happening. So think of yourself, whoever you are in the podcast, you're from Ohio, you're an undergrad studying computer science and somewhere in the world is someone waiting for you to turn the history for 50 years with one place. It yep. is really like that. One thing that a lot of the public don't get is they think that the government's a big system of people with big meetings. Sometimes it's just That's a right. guy in Iran who makes the whole difference. Right. And sometimes they swing wrong and bad things happen. The game's still got to be played. Oh, right. just on human rights in the United States, whatever position, the game's still got to be played, even if there's a blowback and a consequence. You still got to play the game. You got to play it. Yeah. You got to try. You have to be the change that you want to see in the world. You have to play an active role in that. I oh. guess you could just sit back and be part of the scenery, but so you he might helped, just be part of the problem, in fact. He helped shape it. The and then the CIA had a lot of overstretch and a lot of things that they weren't supposed to do. He got before Congress and he said, we're a democracy. If you don't like what I've done over my career in the end, then regulate it. And get involved. 
He said, I'm not here to tell you how to run the country. I'm here to execute on the authority you give me. And if you want to change that authority, you do that. And he was a really beautiful guy. And he impacted the world single-handedly on several instances. And he's yep. not, he was not necessarily remarkable from his perspective. You just read his monologue. He's just a person talking to himself. What do you think he right. should be doing? Right. And so here you had a person his entire life who's introspecting, trying to figure out, clawing for the best for everyone. And I really like that book because we live in a time where people don't have self-esteem and they don't believe in themselves and they don't believe they can have impact. And it's absolutely untrue. And, and the fastest way to impact is to believe in yourself irrationally at times and just go. And even if you fall and fail, you're going to learn, you're going to iterate. Now, look, if you don't have that fortitude and it's not for you, then that's fine. Get behind someone who does. It's not everything right. is not for everyone. Right. I have a friend who has a phobia of being in the woods where the brush is thick. And there's nothing they but can do. Being in the woods with a what? Thick brush. Oh, just like thickets. Like, like, a, per like a person who has a phobia around darkness or spiders. And they have a phobia oh, for that, right? Gotcha. Gotcha. And some people, we just have things we just can't get over. And that brings me to another point on social politics in the U.S. which really saddens me. Sure. Is yeah. that I see the United States as a portfolio. And the best portfolio is what kind of portfolio? What is the word? Diverse. Diversified portfolio. Yes. Diverse right. portfolio. Yes. We need the hunters. We need the human rights lawyers. We need the activists. We need the soldiers and killers. We need the first responders. We need the civil rights. We need the people who don't want change, right? Yep. It's a portfolio. Yep. Yep. And everyone has their time up to back. The people yep. who don't want change, those people might be really bad for liberalism, but really good at stopping China from intruding on our rights. Mm -hmm. They don't want change, right? That's right. Oh, they don't want to change right. the thing that we all have going for themselves. And so right. I look as a portfolio strategy. And if we all could just see it that way, our patience and our philosophy about how right. we engage each other will change a lot. This is one of the things that gets me really excited. And I don't really fit into any particular box very well, but I will in a non-monogamous sense, in a non-monogamous like political sense, like adopt different views across the spectrum where I think it makes sense. And I don't identify as one thing or another thing. Yeah. And I don't really fit into any one box like very well because of that. And it confuses people because I break rules. I think what I'm, I'm just doing with my identity, what you just described is really healthy for our nation. Trying to do that. And it's yes. a journey. It's not a destination. It's always changing. I think one, one of the things that has clutched the individual American soul is a desire to establish self-esteem through political identities. And I think nothing healthy comes from this at all. Zero. There's nothing good there. Like, why are you going to attach your, your self-worth, your self-esteem, yeah. your self-acceptance to you can, something external you can, that you have to cling to that may not make sense? Yeah. You know, I think if a person's going to a bar wondering how a person votes, the person they're hurting the most is themselves. Yes. Right? Because they yes. could be looking for people who are funny. They could be looking for people who like to ride bicycles. And these go. are conversations that are not necessary in your entire life cycle of a relationship with someone. And the more we make politics a conversation for people, the worse they're going to become as human beings, in my opinion. Look at like what a portfolio. There are people who love knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I just don't think that it would be good if everyone did it. 
I don't right. think it'd be good if everyone was a sociopath at war making decisions on bombing runs. Yeah. And I, I think that we have to relax a little bit and realize that we can't so draw we, everyone into our wars because we are different. Not, we are all so different. And it, and those differences are not a bad thing. They are our strength. Yes. Absolutely. And then they're human beings. All human beings have limitations of what kind of information they can process, what they can understand. And if we're these people at the lines of change, then I would I just ask us to also understand that in front of you is a human being. And Absolutely. that means to me that not just like some UN human rights charter, it means that they're fallible. It means that they're shit. They're just not going to understand. Like the brain can't process. And so it might take a year, like therapy. Like if we all want to change and we have some problem, it takes 10 years of therapy sometimes to change. Get that person in front of you whose views you don't like, even if you're sure they are wrong, it's 10 years. And right. so we have, have to, I don't mean to be political, but we have to accept that there's nowhere to go with each other. And we got to get used to being patient and doing that. Right now, our patience yeah. with each other seems to be zero. I don't feel that at all with you. <laughs> you and I are not. It looks like that on Twitter and social media when I read the headlines. It's I deleted all my social media accounts. I did like too. I, I will hold <laughs> dinner parties and I will invite people over because it's a lot. It's when you have a synchronous conversation with someone in person, you get all of the, the juicy like body language that comes up yeah. and that we're constantly reading and the communication right. channel is much more rich. I think that when the human you, brain writes through social media, there is like the whole kind and thoughtful part of them is just deleted. It, I mean... It, it's so easy to forget that there are other human beings that are reading like what you write. And then even then, like when you read text, you have none of the communication channels that our brains have evolved a couple of. Like you are reading my body language. This is why I have the camera on. So you can read my body language and I can read yours. We have a more fluid, intricate, deep conversation that way. But if we were just sending text back and forth to each other, it'd be very dry because we're just not... The 90% of communication is gone. Maybe even 95%. It's just gone. This, gone. Re this reminds me of, uh, there's a comparison. There's a book I'll share with you. Oh, please. The book is called by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. And it's called On Killing. On Killing. On Killing. Okay. The psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in a War in Society. Wow. And before leading up to World War Wars and the Korean War and Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. So there was uh, apparently a lot of people who just didn't engage in any combat because they couldn't. And so even in the battlefield, a lot of people never fired anything. And when so the, the argument is that movies romanticize everyone's hero in fighting. A lot of people just couldn't bring themselves to pull the trigger in the middle mm. of the battle, which is why maybe casualties were much higher too at that time. Mm. And so what happened was they learned that if you make like a silhouette shape for a range, you're muscle memorying the shoot so you get the round off before you realize process it. Right. Now, here's my thing, right. right? So same thing with social media. When you're arguing and saying horrible things, you're firing off before you process that that's a person. Right. It's the same thing. Yeah. And so I was talking with a friend of mine who left the intelligence community today and we were joking. He's like, how do you make the word better face to get rid of social media? Hmm? Not that, it's not that it's very valuable, it changes lives, but it also brings out this dark side where we're firing shots before we realize that's a person. And it doesn't help that their monetization strategy in those companies is to 
produce engagement. And the thing that happens to produce the most engagement is rage. And so those things that they're showing you and the things that pop up on your stream and you're scrolling is like simply designed to produce a response, elicit more screen time. That's it. It's That's a- all that those companies care about. They don't care about your psychological well-being. They don't care about you forming like real relationships with the people on that platform. It's fucked. That's it why is- I deleted those accounts. I have a request for Facebook and someone your podcast. And this Please. Is, it's a legit simple one. So Please. being libertarian, I'm open to however people practice their sexuality, whatever they want to do. I'm sure. more of, I want to make money and run business and build dreams. And then of course. that's done. I'm that's, not, that's, what that's not where about. I want to spend my time with in person. Uh-huh. I'm not also a very social person. I'm just obsessed with the future and building companies. So I have this tolerance. Uh-huh. So fine, let's go. Let's get on the ruck march. Let's start walking. Right. And so that's my attitude towards life and people. And just that's, I'm in that portfolio and the world has to have people like me that I'm just hyper-focused on some things. Uh-huh. And in that process, however, while even overseas on this particular topic, I've always felt saddened that people who are different by their sexuality, whatever, they get it really bad in Asia. Mm. And when Facebook was introduced to the rest of the world, I used to manage a group called Addicted to International Politics. We had 100 nationalities. I did a survey and 100 nationalities from most of the world's countries. I had Taliban on there looking for women who were in the Taliban so they could go find them and not have them express themselves. So we had people reach out to me. Hey, I'm a woman in Afghanistan. Can I use this fake profile as a man? Because we didn't have, we had no fake profile. I said, go ahead. So he made exceptions and I learned right. and it was like, and I had some, well, one of my friends who works in the Pentagon used to be an admin with me there. It was like right. a serious thing. We, there was a woman who escaped Sri Lanka. She married one of my admins cause she was going to be killed because she was like raped, but it was like an honor killing or something. Ooh. And so I was reaching out to human rights lawyers. Hey, I had this person contact me on social media mm-hmm. and I want to do something about this. Mm-hmm. They're like on the run. And so we had this experience and I had to deal with people who were gay and all kinds of things like that. Yeah. And what I realized though, is when you add a friend, it recommends the friend you added to other people, even if you block your friend list. Oh. So if you and so I are- holes, there's loopholes in yes. this. So if you and I are in Iraq or you and I are in Indonesia, in right. an Islamic area, and I add right. three gay people, but I block my friend list, the cleric or my father is going to see a recommendation to friend that person. Dangerous. And they know immediately because they'll go to me and see that if they add them, then it'll show up somehow to see a like or something. Right. So when I was invited as an admin of this group, right, which was in the middle of one or two interesting things in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I went to Facebook and I was very serious. And I asked about that feature and can you turn it off so that you don't recommend to people you add it? Because for most of the world, this is untenable. And I, dude, I got shut down every one I talked Really? Yeah. So that's frustrating. That's really frustrating. And this is just like a small ask too. But that's key to their growth. Yeah. After I saw a movie on HBO, I think it was called mm-hmm. From Chechnya with Love. And it was about an underground railroad for LGBTQ folks that were yeah. in Chechnya, which is a very dangerous place to be gay. And they were trying to help them get out of it. <laughs> and that movie, it was like a documentary or docudrama, like undercover filming. And oh, it just made me so upset. And I was like, okay, 
Like I can be part of the change that I want to see in the world. Here's the darker part. Tell that me. feature must yeah. be responsible for people being dead. Yes. Because I, they... I, I said that. They just... I wasn't talking to the right people. And I was like, listen, I'm coming from this place from experience. And I'm telling you, people are getting hurt. But as technology leaders, we do have the ability to bring into this world like new things that can make the world a better place. And I think like when we do that and we do that in a way that enables like safe connections or privacy preserving technologies, I'm all for that. I'm all for that. And that's one of the really cool things about Starlink, right? Is that hopefully places like North Korea will have internet access. Hope he makes it free for everyone for that part of the world. Just beam it down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I know that China is developing tech to block it because they immediately got on, caught on to what this is about. And I think that when I first returned to the United States in 2019, uh -huh. 2016, I came from that world and I had been to Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore. I had been extorted, blackmailed, threatened, overcode, all kind of stuff. I, I had some wounds to lick when I returned to the United States. It's such a yeah. bad place. There are criminals here and there are thieves here, but we respond with shock and surprise. There are racists and bigots, but we respond with shock and surprise. In most of the world, they don't respond with shock and surprise. And that's the difference. And when you come from a world where people don't respond to shock and surprise from that, it's very isolating. It's very sad. And it's, you want to do something about it when you return. Yeah. And when I would pitch doing something about it, I noticed a lot of people didn't want to touch it. And next so, time you pitch something to do something about it, pull me <laughs> in. Please. So at that time I had to do with China. <laughs> no one wanted to okay. touch it. And uh, it's changed though. It's changed a lot. And I noticed that there is discussions about our tech leaders, about how we can delicately help Hong Kong or this kind of things. And. In my generation, it's strange. There when was were you born? 79. Okay. So I'm 84. Okay. So we're very close. We're, we're very close. Yeah. And in, in our generation, it wasn't that there was one people of the world. It was that there was one community of free people in the world. And it was our responsibility for anybody who says we want to be like you to do something about it. The U.S. has right. fell short of it many times, but it was right. something we strive for. And I've noticed from the right and the left, they just throw it out in the last two elections. And so for people from our generation, it's not about ideology. It's that these people I know who are acting this way have never lived there. Right. As, you haven't experienced it firsthand and you don't really understand it. Yeah, we're super lucky. Six billion people out of the, was it eight now? They live in just, we often talk about, activists often talk about their labor conditions and exploitation. But they all, what they don't talk about and what the crypto community doesn't talk about is how they treat each other in their culture. Making mm -hmm. a woman stay with her boss at eight o'clock drinking three times a week or she's going to get fired because that's the culture. That's wrong. And I don't care what the cult you say about. There are some things we shouldn't be open-minded about. Treating right. him being like that is not excusable by culture. That's Absolutely a person not. who's going to suffer trauma and their tra that trauma is going to transfer to their children. And so we still have this better world to make, but of course we got to do it within some resource limits. Tech is interesting because the, the, you can reach far and wide with little resource. That's right. And I feel like from that Cold War mentality, our work's still not there. It's a journey, not a destination, right? Yeah. And I really wish that the people here would get a second win for that work because 
There's a book that I was recommended that I admittedly haven't really got to in depth called The Jungle Grows Back, I recommend for your audience. The Jungle Grows Back by Robert Kagan basically suggests that if the U.S. pulls back from the world, the jungle of the the colonial era is going to grow back. That's very Atlas Shrugged. Yes, but you see the evidence of it. So the U.S. has been rather weak around defending Eastern Europe, so they see that as an imitation. So they invade it and talks about the fall of the U.S. world order. So you're going to have to pay mercenaries and companies to securely ship if the U.S. pulls back patrolling the sea lanes. You're going to see pirates again. And that's the one thing the American people concern me about is they have this delusion with no foundation that the future is just better. And there's no... There's no set future. There's nothing back. There's nothing. It is what we make of it. This world is what we make of the world. What if the last 80 years are just a deviation from the mean and we're being pulled back to darkness? So we have to be serious about this. If you could go back in time, meet your younger self, would you have any advice for your younger self? I would say don't make too much meaning of conflicts in the present. Don't be too emotional about that stuff because it's all going to pass. It passes. Focus on getting out of the situation everything you can. Be as nice to as many people as you can. If you have enemies, don't show them your teeth. Let them be in the dark of what you can do. Yeah. If you're going to, I'll make a joke about President Bush invading Iraq, at least don't tell them you're going to do it so they can prepare. Right? And you're just giving people a way to manipulate and control you if you show them everything about your emotion. Hide it. Develop it. Do something about it. And get more control over yourself. And that's what I would tell my younger. So I spend more time on that. I have ADHD, right? Symptoms. So impulse control and emotions and hyper-focus, they get you really far, but they also create a lot of of self-inflicted. If I put my investor hat on real quick and I ask you the question, okay, American binary, you sound like an amazing leader, but you're building a business. There's clear opportunity. There's going to be clear need for all of this, even today, even right now. Not just because of the things we don't know, but because people that care can be recording everything and just break historical content as soon as it does become available in terms of cryptography. How do you monetize cryptography? So cryptography is bad business from monetization. I think a lot of investors know that what is valuable is if you build whole IT products that are agile for encryption that needs to be transitioned and you have a real thorough vetted expertise in that new encryption that everyone's scared of. Yeah. And what we do is we roll out SASE and other solutions that leverage more software-defined firewalls and so on to lower IT cost. Mm-hmm. There are always people that say SDNs are out of fashion and SASE. And honestly, this is all mumbling noise to me. There is, it's an IT product that costs less and people can use it and it's vetted. That's all it really is. And so rather than getting caught up in the Gartner buzzwords and stuff, let's just talk about the first principles. And so we have use case deployed with a, a company owned by S&P 500 Humana, healthcare mm-hmm. company, uh, yep. network management. And our solution, Fortress, is a network infrastructure in a box. And think of it like an app store. We can deploy firewall. We can deploy VPN. We can deploy several other features in the IT network in a software fashion. In one use case, we were... We modeled reducing hardware firewalls from 500 to one, but with the same throughput and performance and network integrity. So smaller Mm -hmm. attack surface, well, that's expensive. So the company strategy, how we monetize it is 
we're going to reduce company IT costs at scale by more than 70% while transitioning to post-quantum encryption for free. So our implementations have been used in Ukraine. We have done a lot of work in warfighters. We probably have the most beaten and tried implementation of post-quantum encryption in the world. That much I can say. We've been through a long vetting process and we continue to expand to lightweight cryptography and we figure out how to bring this into the transition to new IT equipment that's lighter, faster, and better. So you actually deliver a product because I see cryptography as a tool and instead of deliver a tool to the market, which never works, like you're delivering a full-on product, which is the SDN. That cuts IT cost and reduces the attack surface and makes it easier for the IT and madmen to operate the network. So the implementations of this new quantum resistant cryptography that you guys are super good at and laser focused on and you drop into your products. Is that proprietary? Are those proprietary implementations? Well, it's no, it's but to more tradecraft and then some of the proprietary way that the software is integrated into the network protocols and that stuff. Sure. You, look, if someone's offering proprietary cryptography, it's usually snake oil unless they're serving the NSA or the CIA and it's yeah. not cryptography. Yes. Yes. A scalable solution is to use standardized stuff, right? This is easier, more interoperable, less education for the customer. Kyber is being standardized and so are a couple of other ciphers that we use that are not elliptic curve and not RSA. But we could talk about that. There's also some real interesting solutions and also in lightweight cryptography that may fall under soon post-quantum cryptography. So 160 mm -hmm. kilobyte key size post-quantum solution. There's a lot happening in encryption. So we figure out how do I get that into a network? We offer the network solution mm -hmm. at a fraction of the cost so that when you're upgrading with us, you can use today's encryption. And in two years, you can say, I want post-quantum. We do an API call, it's all turned work. Ah, so you have crypto agility built into your products. Yes, and we define crypto agility as it's no good if it's increasing the attack surface. So if you're jamming crypto in there, that's not good. So what right. we do is we have one cryptographic construction per network protocol, and we swap the network protocols out in whole with our API call. So we don't increase the attack surface despite being crypto agile. There's a lot of tiny little deep tech details that are really important to do this. This is right. why TLS is such a horrible system because it's got so much jammed in there that it's for, right. for always being breached because the attack surface right. is in, just ginormous. If we're going to speak TLS and I'm an attacker and I'm going to initiate a connection to a server and that server is willing to downgrade the version of the protocol or use an insecure cipher suite, that's what you're talking about, right? Yes. So like people will say, how do you not use TLS? There's a lot of places where you can do it, not using it for your core parts of your VPN, your encrypted communications, mm -hmm. even do it without email if you wanted to. And at the network layer, you have quite a few options. And so you want to minimize the dependence on this stuff as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But this is what we do. We have traction in healthcare and we also have traction in defense. In fact, we had a really big call today with people from special operations community on a project with the telco. And so we continue to be at the tip of the condensation or the tip of the spear in this topic. In 16 months, it's standardiz standardization is fully authorized for post-quantum encryption for all federal products. So you can have a post-quantum AWS cloud. And the federal government will buy it. There are no barriers to entry at that point. So how's Amazon going to do that? Because they have that. Yeah, there are two, well, two, two, two ways of looking. Well, a lot of encryption is complicated. There are two important parts in transit at rest. Kyber right. is a stream cipher at rest. So you can compare pair it with AES gotcha. or something like that. Yep. Or you can even pair it with like ASCON and Lightweight Cryptography, which is an AEAD. And that's a much smaller. So you have a lot of options now, sexy options that are standardizing in the next 18 months. 
So you will develop construction, you'll get it vetted, tested. There are no NIAP profiles to evaluate soft limitation. They're going to be around back 18 months. Mm. So it's all happening. And look at it like this. So people say, what is the transition to post-coin encryption market size? And all the market research is wrong because they're valuing the encryption as the value add only. But mm. if you're fitting all the products and the market size is post-quantum VPN, post-quantum firewall, post-quantum whole product, that means- Post-quantum application layer email, encryption. Post-quantum email. So yeah, post the market size is every single piece of hardware that is encrypted and the product as a whole, because you're going to sell the whole new thing all over again. Right. You don't think that the incumbents who sell hardware are going to sell you upgrades. They're going to make you buy the whole damn thing over because there's more revenue. But the market research is factoring in as whole products, only as value adds. So I say I the market research is wrong. So the SAM and the TAMs are ginormous. Yeah. Basically the entire internet. By 2030, it's over a trillion. Everything will be yeah. post quantum encrypted. And if not, then, you know, at our peril, right? That's the risk we take as entrepreneurs. We see the future and we skate to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. So the real trick in my business is to make sure you're around in the market for the next 16 months before the demand blows up when the federal gates all open because it's all authorized. And people don't understand how big federal is. Almost every big tech company has federal. They just don't market it. It's mm -hmm. so much money for them. AWS, someone told me, is like 40% revenue from defense. So AWS would probably not be a profitable company if it weren't for the U.S. government. Oh, absolutely not. They'd be missing 40% of their income. The single biggest spending customer in the world is U.S. government. So that's why like when they authorize this encryption, it's such a big deal. Well, thank you so much for all of the generous time that you've shared with me and all of our listeners. Would you like to leave our listeners with any words of wisdom? <laughs> I would say we need all the help we can get. I don't have all the answers. And uh, so please feel free to reach out to me. My website is ambit.inc, I-N-C. You would you like to make a plug for anything? Sure. Someone wants to try out like post-quantum. If you want to try out a post-quantum enterprise a VPN or other product, you can reach out to us and we can support you in that department. Are you hiring? Any rules of the Yeah, market? I'm looking for sales professionals for enterprise, and I'm also looking for two senior engineers to support some products that we have coming. So we all have right. one we're deploying in an austere environment that's really tight, and the code has to be tight, and we have a couple of things like, like IoT applications. Amazing. And I'm looking for supporters who can help us see our vision. I want help in scaling my company. Excellent. <laughs> and Kevin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is spectacular. I um, wanted to give you my best and I wanted to be useful for your audience. And so I tried to do that. I hope I did. You did. Absolutely. You went way above and beyond. And thank you for all the vulnerable moments that you shared as well. No problem. You should have seen my other interview. It was four hours. Really? I did one on Robert Hansen's a famous hacker. And he had a death threat. He hacked Slim North Korean operating or something. And he sold the company recently for 45 million cash. He wears the hacker like Cole's thing, like his clothes are dark and it's got a leather thing that zips over and oh character. He you got to meet him. He's like from the Matrix. And cool. Cool. So thank you very much. Let's no, talk. thank you. Thank you. This is amazing. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in for another episode of the Security Podcast in Silicon Valley.